Good morning, new community. So um, <coughs> let me, uh, before I start this morning, let me say this. The um, Russell's announcement about Carter was uh, just a classic new community moment where we shared this unbelievable news with pretty much a straight face and just a, this happened and here we go. And uh, it was the least celebratory I've ever seen a group of people about something. Uh, but again, that is exactly in line with everything that new community does. So let me say this. Uh, I don't know when we first made the announcement. It was like mid-June, I believe, or May, or it was sometime a couple of months ago. We said we feel God is leading us to uh, hire this position, and uh, if this is going to happen, community of faith talking to you, we need to raise $35,000. And that, God met us in the midst of that, and that is to be celebrated, and that is pretty remarkable. And so, uh, new community, well done, um, and uh, we are as a staff and as elders, and I hope as a community, incredibly thankful that God continues to show up in remarkable ways in this place. So um, again, that's about as excited as I'll ever get about anything. Um, so um, we do not have slides for the message this morning. We had some uh, technical difficulties, which is also something that New Community has almost every single week. Um, so we were just able to get all the song slides in, um, so you're going to have to really listen in this morning if you're going to follow along. Um, let's turn to chapter 7 of uh, the book of John, verses 37 through 52 is going to be uh, kind of our story this morning, and uh, let me again just pray as we uh, jump into the scripture. God, we are thankful. We are reminded of um, not only your faithfulness to continue to provide for this community, but your faithfulness in uh, meeting our dreams and desires and the goals that we have set out. You are a God that shows up so consistently, and uh, we are thankful. Lord, we pray that uh, this morning as we study your word, as, uh, as we wrestle with your scripture, that you would meet us in this endeavor as well. We desire to hear from you. We want to grow. We want to learn. Uh, and we trust that you'll uh, send your spirit to convict us in those ways. We pray these things in Christ's name. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. Jesus makes this pronouncement on the steps of the temple. A uh, wonderful statement, one of the kind of most often quoted, a, a favorite scripture, certainly in our Christian culture, in our modern context. It's incredibly hopeful and in a lot of ways harmless as we read it. But in that moment, in that context, and in the light of the burgeoning ministry of Jesus that had been happening, this statement created incredible tension and division in that moment. 
you have to understand the context a little bit to understand why. So Jesus declared this truth of his being the living water on the final day of the Jewish festival of the Feast of Tabernacles. One of the three major feasts for the Jewish people that commemorated their time in the wilderness. And on each of the seven days, the first seven days of the feast, the priest would fill jugs of water from the pool of Siloam while singing psalms. And he would come out onto the temple steps and he would bring these jugs of water and he would pour the water on the steps. This imagery, this symbolic gesture was meant to remind the people of God's unbelievable faithfulness when he provided water from the rock to those who were wandering in the desert and about to perish. And on the eighth and final day, the priest would circle the altar a number of times, and he would grab those jugs and with even more drama and even more flair, fling water around the steps, and when all the water was out of the jugs, there would be a lasting prayer for the following year for God's continued faithfulness to provide. Provide for the harvest, provide for our needs, provide food. It was a beautiful festival, one that was, uh, some people would say, you know, hundreds of thousands of Jews would come, millions of Jews would come to come and be a part of this. And it's highly likely that it was at this moment that Jesus stands up on the temple steps and cries out, as the scripture says, literally shouting that he, in fact, is the living water. And that those who were spiritually thirsty could take him in and finally be satiated. The claim of being the only water that anyone could ever need in the moment where people were worshiping God for providing the water that they thought that they needed was more than just brash words from some outlaw or rebel rouser. It was a heretical religious claim in that moment said on the temple steps. Now, I can imagine some people standing there hearing Jesus shouting at the top of his lungs, maybe for the first time, had hope. Their deepest desires of spiritual fulfillment were given voice in that moment. They heard that there was a way. They saw that there was a person. They understood that there might be a plan that would lead them to what they had always been searching for. But others, primarily the religious elite, the chief priests and the Pharisees, as the scripture says, hear a voice of someone trying to dismantle the power structure that was in place. They saw a figure that had challenged their held beliefs. They were watching a ministry unfold right before them that included everyone equally, that gave a voice to the oppressed and to the marginalized, and in turn began to blur the lines of who in fact held authority, who was in control, who had the power in that moment. Needless to say, Jesus' claim sets off a heated public dispute in that moment. Some say well, he, he must be a prophet. Others say he was the Messiah. But the skeptical in that moment fired back asking, well, how could the Messiah come from Galilee? Galilee was this detestable region to the religious elite in that moment. 
And their understanding of Scripture had led them to believe that the Messiah would be from Bethlehem in the line of David. And without knowing the full story of Jesus' life, which we have the privilege of knowing, they had believed that Jesus was from Galilee and therefore born in Galilee and no prophet, no Messiah could ever come from that region. And so division ensues. People standing opposed to one another's ideas and the religious elite take it upon themselves to instruct the temple guards to seize Jesus so that they could put an end to all of this craziness. But amazed by his words and how he spoke them, the guards intentionally return empty-handed. What I find most interesting about this story and really throughout the gospel, and we've touched on this a number of times as we've been studying John is the fact that these people are all seeing and hearing the same thing, yet coming to radically different conclusions. Some see a great teacher. Some see a prophet, some a messiah. Some see an insurrectionist. Some see a religious outlaw. For many, he was the answer that they had always hoped for, and still others he posed the greatest threat to their lives. And all seeing and hearing the same thing, yet they're interpreting something completely different. This is really just the reality of perception, right? Perception, and I would have a definition up here for you, but perception can be defined as our recognition and interpretation of sensory information, including how we respond to that information. We can think of perception as a process where we take in sensory information from our environment and then interpret it and then use that information to interact with our environment. Perception is always an individualized process. I see something in my environment, I interpret it, and then I interact with whatever that thing is. So I was a psychology major in college, how many psychology majors do we have here? The strong and the bold. I love it. Yeah. I was a psychology major in, uh, in college, and I can remember uh, this was probably, I don't know actually what year, maybe my sophomore year, but it was still kind of a lower level psychology course. And um, there was probably, I don't know, 80, 75 to 100 students in class, big, uh, you know, lecture style classroom. And uh, we're in that the room, and all the seats are kind of, uh, you know, cascading down to, uh, down to the stage. Two doors uh, behind us enter into the room, and uh, the professor begins. This was towards the beginning of uh, of my quarter. Professor begins the class with uh, offering some logistical information about an upcoming test, and uh, you know, what's the test going to be on, and what's the test style and the format, and what chapters from the book should you be reading, and so on and so forth. I'm going into this, and in the middle of uh, this kind of, uh, you know, informational um, talk that she's giving us uh, about this upcoming test, the door in the back right flings open, <coughs> and a person comes running down the side of all of the seats, flailing their arms, yelling at the top of their lungs, comes up onto the stage, she had a little table and then a podium like this, flings off all the papers that were on the, uh, on the table, 
hits off the book and then runs back through the back of the stage and out the, the building. And we're all just like, what in the world just happened? My teacher then takes this like long, awkward time, or my professor takes this long, awkward time and like picking up papers and say, I mean, it's, it felt like an eternity. And we're all wondering what, what is going on right now. Gets the book kind of back on the table. She finally gets back and reclaims the podium and then instructs us to take out a piece of paper for a pop quiz. Totally straight face. And on the overhead, which for many of you uh, millennials have no idea what an overhead is, <coughs> on the overhead puts up this uh, sheet of paper, or a, you know one of those trans it's a transparency is what it's called, and uh, there's all of these questions about this event that just happened. What was the person wearing? What was the person yelling about? Was the person a man or a woman? I mean, just uh, probably, I don't know, 20, 30 questions about this event that had just happened. And we go through and, and we write all these things down. And uh, <coughs> maybe shockingly to you, maybe not, as we then go back through and reread all these answers, all of our answers are wildly different on what had just happened and inconsistent from one person to the next. From everything, was the person wearing a coat to not wearing a coat? What was the person's uh, color of their shirt? Did they have a hat on? What was the length of hair? What, uh, there was even some discrepancy of whether this person was a man or a woman. What was the person's uh, kind of in uh, like temperament as they were running through? What could this person's intentions be? And so we display all these answers. And interesting, most of the class got a majority of the answers right, but all of the class missed some answers for sure. There was wild inconsistency. In that moment, we all saw something differently. Once we were done taking this test, she then asked us to recite back all of the info that she had given us right before about the test. Can anybody remind me when the test is, what chapters the test is on, how many questions, so on and so forth. And again, not surprisingly, much of what recited was absolutely wrong. Different test date, different chapters, what, sty uh, what style of test, what kind of pencils we needed in papers and booklets we needed to have in there, all this stuff. All of these things, one person heard one thing, another person heard something completely different in that moment. What we had just heard a few minutes before had either been misunderstood or we individually had gone back in and filled in the gaps of the stuff that we didn't remember. She did this little exercise in our classroom to let us know that sometimes our interpretations can let us down. Sometimes our perception can let us down. Sometimes that which we are sure about is not actually true. What we see and hear has to go through a process of perception where our own experience, our own bias, our own moods, our own desires, our own attentiveness all play a part into our ending interpretation of the very thing that just happened to us. And this is no different 
and how these people in chapter 7 saw Jesus. They were all seeing the same thing in that moment and yet coming to wildly different conclusions about what was going on. Now, there can be beauty in this reality, right? My different perception in a moment as I read scripture, as I have an interaction in a, in a morning service like this, my different perception might help somebody else see a new facet of Jesus. It might help encourage somebody towards greater depth of understanding. Or, or maybe their unique biblical interpretation on something might change my mind about something. It might help me to grow. This happens all of the time and it should be celebrated. This is the power of community, that we help each other grow in this way. And I encourage you to surround yourself with people that have maybe a different perception because you will be challenged to grow, to change, to learn. But there's not, it's not always so beautiful. There's a side that is maybe a little bit more ugly. It's the side that we see in this story. It's the side that says, well, my perception is better than yours. It's the side that says my interpretation is wrong, or my interpretation is right, sorry, and yours is wrong. It's the side that says I know Jesus, so you must not. This is why we read in verse 43, it says the people were divided because of Jesus. Jesus himself said that this would be the reality, right? In Matthew 10, he says, For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. He's quoting uh, a, a passage from Micah right there. And then he goes on to say, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus knew that his message would be divisive. Jesus knew the reality of his very being would pit person against person. Jesus knew that his call to total devotion in our lives would be accepted by some and denied by others. And it's been happening since the day he was born. Therefore, we need not be surprised by it. We need not be worried by that reality because we can trust that God is in control. We can trust that he always knew this would happen when he sent his son. So if we know that the reality of our human experience is always filtered through this individualized process of perception and we've been told the truth that Jesus' message would be divisive, what can we as a church do when division begins to happen? When we find ourselves in a situation like chapter 7 of the book of John. I think there's two distinct paths that we can take. The first is the way of the Pharisees, the teachers and the chief priests. You see, in this passage and throughout the gospel, it's evident that anyone or anything that spoke and believed a message that was inconsistent with theirs was certainly guilty of something. Now, I can read the scripture. I've read John enough to appreciate the unwavering perception of God that the religious elite have. 
I actually can admire the strict adherence and discipline to tradition that they have. But these things, if left unchecked, can lead to arrogance and can lead to pride. And because of this, what we see is them interpreting the person and message of Jesus as dangerous. And so they act to quietly dismiss and eventually distinguish them from him and move to eradicate him from the story. One of my favorite authors, David James Duncan, who's uh, kind of a local Pacific Northwest author, writes a lot of uh, uh, stories and um, short stories about kind of outdoor life here in the Pacific Northwest, writes this. He says, if you were basking in bright sunlight and hugely thankful for it, and a man a quarter mile away suddenly shouted, hey you, I can see the sun from over here. Stop what you're doing and come over where I am. Hurry, you've got to come here. I see the sun. Come out of the darkness, sinner. Get over here where I am. Is there any reason to obey him? On the contrary, if you obey, you indulge the shouter's peace-shattering belief that the sun is so limited that it can only be seen from where he is standing. And you reinforce the false assumption that everyone but he is a fool living in darkness. Sometimes I feel as though this has been the posture of the church. It's as if we've created a singular reality. The reality that either you are with us or you are against us. And so two sides emerge, which two sides always emerge. And both become staunchly sure of their rightness in that moment. Neither willing to accept the possibility that there might be another valid perception. And instead of learning new ways to live together, each side goes to task with the dismissal of the other, typically leading to separation and the demonization of one another. I don't think it's a stretch to say that although he knew this might happen, this is the exact opposite of what Jesus desired for us as a family, especially for those who claim to be his followers. He said father would be divided from son, but this division was primarily understood as a division over the lordship of Jesus. That yes, in a family, a father may believe and follow Jesus and a son may choose not to, and therefore there would be division. But for those who call Jesus Lord, for those who have given their lives to him, we have to look for a different path than the path that the first century Pharisees and chief priests walked. That different path, I think, is displayed in the end of our story, and it's modeled to us by the character of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a fascinating character we see in three different places in the Gospel of John. This will be real short because we're going to come back to chapter 3, uh, or we're going to come to chapter 3 here in a few weeks. But Nicodemus himself was one of the religious elite, a Pharisee, in fact. He first appears in chapter 3 of John when he comes to ask questions of Jesus under the guise of darkness at nighttime so that he wouldn't be found out. And Jesus and Nicodemus ha launch into this deeply theological discussion. And the last place he appears in the gospel is chapter 19, which we've already discussed. And in fact, I preached on this passage. 
and it's right after Jesus is crucified. Nicodemus shows back up into the Gospel of John, and he's there with the body of Jesus, helping Joseph prepare Jesus' body for burial, almost as if he's a devoted follower at this time. And so in our story, at the end, he interrupts the scheming chief priests and the Pharisees, and he reminds them, he says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Commentator Dale Bruner refers to this as Nicodemus's little stand. It's as if he's saying, hey guys, maybe slow down for a moment. Rather than demonizing all who have found hope in Jesus, and before we execute these plans to capture and kill this man, what if we simply listened to him? What if we asked questions and were actually open to his answers? like I did a little while ago. Does this not make more sense? Have we not forgotten that our law at least requires this much? It's a path that is slow and humble. And it's a path that ultimately leads Nicodemus to a transformed life in Jesus. Now, not surprisingly, the Pharisees listening to Nicodemus urging dismiss him completely. They throw out this theological zinger, placing him as a Jesus sympathizer and saying, well, then you too must be from this detestable region of Galilee. If you're speaking this way about this man, if you're calling us to listen to him, then you must be in cahoots somehow. And so although he's quickly dismissed in our story, I think there are two specific things that Nicodemus does that I believe can help us. The first is this, be willing to be wrong. Jesus come, or, uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night to ask questions, which inherently means he was not totally sure of the answers. This he urges his friends to do as well. Let's listen to Jesus. What does he have to say? Nicodemus doesn't seem overly sure of his rightness. So let me say this, new community, it is okay to be wrong about things. That is okay. In fact, it's good to be about, uh, wrong about things at different times. Because being wrong allows for growth and it allows for change. I myself have been wrong a thousand times. I've been wrong about theology, and I'm confident I'll be wrong about theology in the future as well. And that's okay. Because Jesus has me in his hands and will continue to guide me. And the most growth I've ever experienced has been in those times where I've consciously tried to humble myself to say, I might be wrong about this. So help me to learn, help me to grow. When we open ourselves to being wrong, then and only then are we really truly able to listen. Nicodemus asks questions in chapter 3, and then he actually listens to what Jesus has to say. Listening is an art that is to be learned and to be practiced. What we see along the path of the chief priests and the Pharisees is just filling the air with words and accusations, waiting for every moment where their voice might be heard 
one more time. Listening, I believe, is the process of slowing down and opening yourself to learning. The ongoing work to keep oneself from producing an answer in every moment. The ongoing work of keeping yourself from making sure that you were right at every moment. Keeping yourself from needing to be heard at every moment. And when we open ourselves to the possibility that we might be wrong about some things, we listen. And when we listen, Jesus speaks. Secondly, and maybe most importantly, he looks to Jesus. You see, as a Pharisee, he would have had remarkable theological training, training enough to give him all the answers he could want. And yet, he sees Jesus. He continues to look for Jesus, and then he urges others to do the same. Rather than coming to his own conclusions, he says, let's see what Jesus has to say. In our life, there are so many things to look at, so many things that can distract our vision, competing ideas and attractive answers and safe explanations for things, and yet all we really need to see is Jesus, to keep coming back to the person, the teaching, and the ministry of him. And with every question and every decision, to look at his life to find what you were looking for. This may not produce our desired answers within our desired timeline, but I can promise you it's the only way that we keep moving towards him. If we can commit to live this way, then even when we are struggling to understand one another's perspective, we can move in the same direction together. Spurgeon says this, We can sometimes even fight with one another for what we believe to be the truth and rebuke each other in the face if we think there is an error. But when it comes to Christ and his dear cross, give me thy hand, brother. You were washed in the blood, and so am I. You were resting in Christ, and so am I. You have put all your hope in Jesus, and that is where all my hope is. And therefore, we are one. Yes, there is no real division among true people of God because of Christ. I really think it's that easy to be willing to be wrong and to look to Jesus. I think if we were to do these things, if we were to follow the model of Nicodemus, we might eliminate much of the heartache and mess that we feel in our Christian communities sometimes. When I read the gospel, it seems clear that the religious folks were worried when Jesus came onto the scene because it threatened their status quo. For so long, it was them that got to shape how everyone saw and understood God. They were the ones that provided the only acceptable interpretation. They provided the ultimate religious authority and safety. And Jesus came to destroy this. So I wonder now, what is it that we are all worried about? When a different perspective emerges, why does that create such deep-seated fear? Why do we feel the need to bunker in and hold our ground? I wonder if it's become 
because we've become hardened so much that we're unwilling to be wrong or if it's that we've lost sight of Jesus amidst the clutter and noise of church tradition and doctrinal golden calves. I find hope in a story like chapter 7. I pray that we can continue to read stories like this and understand that Jesus came to free us from worry and fear, that he came so that we might have living water, that he came and invited us into a life of continual change and growth and movement. And he knew that the call might create tension and it might create division, but implored his church to radical love and to unity, which Nicodemus shows is best achieved if we are sometimes willing to be wrong and if we are always willing to help each other look to Jesus. Let's pray. God, our desire this morning, as we've prayed a number of times, is to see you, is to know you. And in the midst of disagreement, in the, in the midst of different perceptions, different experiences, that we as a community would be humble enough to walk alongside one another, recognizing that our shared vision of you is all that matters that we can continue to move in lockstep, hand in hand, knowing that you are in control and that we need not worry, that we need not have fear of anything. God, be with us as a community this week. Allow us to be a unity of radical love, a community of care, and devotion to one another. Be with us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.